0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. Shma is embedded in its service, which has two brachot before, which we've spent months talking about, and then one afterwards. And the Shma itself is three paragraphs. The first paragraph Is The Sidur makes it, uh, I'm going to call it, more complex than it is in its native state in the Torah. And we're going to talk about that because we can talk about Shema on so many different levels. Um, We know that Shema as a prayer in the liturgy goes back to temple times. So we think even in second temple times, from what the Mishnah tells us, there was a very small liturgical service as part of the morning sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash, very small liturgical service relative to ours, um, and it included the Shema and probably V'hayayim Shamoah. Okay, so Shema as part of a liturgy existed before our liturgy existed, meaning before there was like a shachrit service and birchot ha'shachar, and most of that stuff, which is Talmudic, Shma was said as part of the temple service. Which means, as a passage from the Torah, which was selected to be part of daily Jewish liturgy, this goes back um, probably as far as anything else except for maybe the Yivarechacha, the priestly blessing, which was also probably part of the liturgy in the temple every morning. Okay? Um, And it's complex to talk about the Shema because um, we can understand it on many different levels. So it's a passage that's taken from the Torah. So, there's a pshat level. Again, pshat means the simplest meaning of a passage in its original context. Um, So we'll talk about that. I'll talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, But that doesn't necessarily, we know that once things are taken out of the pshat context, they don't necessarily mean what they originally meant in the pshat context. So some people say, well, it doesn't really matter what the pshat is if that's not the living life of a text anymore, and other people find it interesting to know what the pshat is. But then Shema is particularly complex because it has so many overlays of meaning. Um, So there's, I just want to point out, there's Shema in its pshat context in uh, Deuteronomy, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. There's Shma in the context of the morning sidur. There's Shema in the context of the first line is what you're supposed to say. We know from all the martyrdom stories, you know, what Rabbi Akiva said when he was martyred. So it becomes, you know, the last thing you're supposed to say before you die. Okay. Um, so... Because the Shema is so famous, I guess I want to put it that way, it has a number of overlays of meaning, um, and that makes it, I think, a more complex prayer, not necessarily complex in terms of the words, but complex in terms of what does it mean, what am I supposed to be thinking about, what is it supposed to be doing for me uh, emotionally, psychologically, and theologically. Right, so it's a prayer more so than other prayers that I think I would just call it very overdetermined in terms of layers of meaning. Does that make sense? So, um, so the the halacha says that for the first line of the Shema, the first six words, Ma'aseh Elohim, that a person has to have full kavana for the line and for every word, which means full. I'm just going to call translate kavanah as Conscious intention um, which just substitutes complicated English words for a complicated Hebrew word okay? I don't know if conscious intention explains it any better than saying Kavana but you need to have Kavana for the first line which you do not need to have for the rest of Shema or for the rest of prayers which means if you went on from and you were thinking about the baseball game but you said all the words, you fulfilled your halachic obligation to say it, okay? But the two things for which you have, you must have kavanah are the first line of the Shema and the first paragraph of the Amidah, according to halacha, according to classic medieval halacha. So that means the halacha has then, We talked about, you know, multiple levels of meaning. The the halakha has, I'm going to say, imposed on Shema or superimposed on Shema that the first line has to have some level of meaning of importance beyond the rest of the paragraph, which is odd because I'd like to point out that for those who might have paid attention to the Torah reading cycle just uh, i don't know three, year, 3 weeks ago or something Shema and Ve'ahavta is just one paragraph in deuteronomy sefer dvarim and there's no distinction that's made there's one paragraph it goes shmei israel shemecha shemechad vehafta ta shemecha bkhor khav khon khav khomad khat et etc there's no there's no highlighting of the first six words as any different than anything else and also, by the way, in Devarim, it's not, you know, whatever we call the Shema. Yes, Michael? With the exception that the ayin and the and the Shema are larger. Yes. We call it. Correct. But there are lots of other good. So the ayin and the and the, and the Shema are larger, which highlights that line somewhat. But there are lots of other letters in the Torah that are larger and smaller. I remember Rabbi Ari Lucas used to give a class on that, the big letters and the small letters, right? Um, um, And which generally the commentators then point to that means something about the word, why is this letter large or small, rather than a line as a whole. So your point is well taken, but I could still try to argue against your point. It's like, okay, there are large letters in the Torah. And it's not like the whole line is large. Okay. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about Pshat first, original context. So in Sefer Dvarim, this comes in, uh, Sefer Dvarim is mostly composed of three speeches by Moshe in year 40, 39 or 40, before the people. It's, it's right across from Jericho. It's in what would today be Jordan, right? Um, on the plains of Moab, right across the Jordan River before the people go into the land. So most of Sefer Varim consists of three speeches of Moshe, of which by far the second one is the longest, and we are in the second one now, and I'm pretty sure Shema is near the beginning of the second one, although I have to go back and recheck. And the second one opens with a long, long, endlessly long harangue Okay? About idolatry. It's about loyalty to God. You're gonna to go to the land where these people worship all kinds of crazy gods, and you need to remember do not fall in with them. Okay? You must worship only Yudke Vavke, who took you out of Egypt, took you through the desert, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um and in the midst of that is this is the statement Shema Yisrael, which then, in context, literally means Moshe is talking to the Israelites, and he is saying to them, "Listen, Israel." Meaning, "Hey, I'm talking to you, right? Listen, Israel." Yud Kavav K Hashem's personal name is our deity. Okay. Yud Kavav K Echad. I'll get to that in a moment. Okay, because. Because there are all kinds of interpretations on what echad means. Larry, you, are, you keep trying to, are you trying to show us a book? You keep holding up a book. He's, he's muted. You're muted. Unmute. No, I wasn't trying to show you a book. You're just waving a book in the air. Okay, thank you. The and that's all. Okay, and Larry, by the way, could you stay on with me for a couple of minutes after class to help me figure out how I can upload this to whatever? If you have a few minutes, OK, because we're recording for the first time ever on Zoom so that people will be able to hear you better when you speak, which apparently when I record it on my phone, it's hard to hear um, things from the Zoom when when people in the class are speaking. Um, so listen, Israel. Moshe is saying as part of his harangue against be careful, don't fall into paganism when you come to the land. Hashem is our deity, Hashem Echad, ve'Avta et Hashem Elohecha. And you must—it's a command. It's not a—it's a—it's not a future predictive. It's a um, command form. You must love Hashem, your God, with all your heart, with all your might. Da 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 da. Set these words and da 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 da. da. Okay. So Moshe is saying in context: Listen, Israel, we're going to the promised land. There will be all kinds of temptations there. Don't forget God who took you out of Egypt. Um, Hashem is our deity. Hashem. Echad. I'm going to come back to Echad, I promise. Okay? And so in context, what does v'ahavta mean? It probably means something like, I know that it means love, but given that you can't command someone to have a feeling, what is Moshe trying to say? Something like, Cleave to with fully devotion, right? You must be 100% devoted to Hashem, your deity, right? With all your, um, again, we'll, we'll get to look at all the words eventually, with all of your whatever, however we translate, Bechol of Bechol Meodecha. And you should think about these words that I am telling you all the time, morning and evening when you lie down and when your eyes up and it should be um, and again, in pshat it probably doesn't mean make tefillin or make mezuzot right? which is what the halacha takes it to mean um, the pshat probably just means it should be you know, in general when we say something should be in your heart, which means in your mind it should mean, you, it might mean you're fully devoted to it, you think about it all the time Okay, or when something is on your arm it means it's very close to you these are metaphors that are used in the Tanakh an awful lot when, uh, when uh, the woman says to the man in Shir Hashirim kafotam kafotam put, put me as a signet or a seal on your heart as a seal on your arm the woman does not mean put a picture of me strapped to your arm and a picture of me clipped to your clothing or anything like that it just means you know keep me very close to you in your heart and in you, on you to say that something is bound on your arm just means it's totally close right it's right on your skin I can't think of a I can't even think of a good uh, English or American metaphor that sort of captures that I can't think of one off the top of my head if you can wave your hand um you know, so so basically, keep these words which I am instructing you says Moshe very very close to you and think about them all the time. This these words that I am saying, what are the words? The words are that you need to worship Hashem Echad and not pagan gods. Okay, that's the original context. The reason I go about on about this at some length is because I want to point out for most of us, for the vast majority of us, whether we should wor- worship worship. Baal, whether we are tempted tempted to worship Baal or Ashtoret, is not a major day-to-day temptation. okay? So the original, we have a very nice example here of a passage that means something very different in context of daily liturgy than in its original context. It's something that's lifted from the Torah, lifted out of original context, and whatever you're thinking about when you are saying the Shema, whatever you are, um, whatever's in your mind in your Kavana, I'm guessing it's not, I shouldn't worship Baal, even though it's tempting. And then there are people said, oh, in the Middle Ages, Echad meant, uh, you know, as opposed to Christianity, which believed in the Trinity. And unless you're, you know, a Jew by choice or potentially Messianic Jew who's really struggling with your Christian faith, I'm guessing, your latent Christian faith, I am guessing that you are not thinking in your mind when you say, Hashem Elohim, Hashem Echad, I do not believe in the Trinity. Okay? I would bet dollars to donuts, that that is not what your kavanah is when you're saying Shema, even though that might have been your kavanah, your ancestor's kavanah, in the year 1200 in Ashkenaz. Okay? So this is what I mean by meaning is over-determined. There are so many layers of meaning that have been heaped on the Shema. And I'm sure you're also not, probably not thinking about Rabbi Akiva and martyrdom. Okay? So... Paul gave me a look. Maybe he is thinking about Rabbi Akiva and martyrdom. I don't know. Okay, I mean, it's a very compelling image that stays with me. Yes, right. And by the way, and I'm not saying I, I want to be clear. I'm not being prescriptive. So I'm not saying you shouldn't think about this means I don't worship Baal, or you shouldn't think about this means I'm not a Jesus follower, or you shouldn't think about Rabbi Akiva and martyrdom. Right. I'm just saying. I would guess that the vast majority of modern people are not thinking of, those, of any of those things. So when we talk uh, about, well, what Baal? is it? Pardon? Who's Baal? Baal is the major male Canaanite deity. Thank you. Here, thank you for asking that. Um, and the major place, without, without doing research uh, on that, uh, the Haftorah of Kitisa. I think, in Exodus, um, is the Haftarah of Elijah at Mount Carmel, where he offers the sacrifice and he says to the people, choose between Yudke, Vavke, and the Baal. Who are you going to worship? Okay, so without doing research, you could just wait till the Torah reading cycle comes again and pay attention during the Haftarah on that Shabbos, and then you'll read about it. Um, So if we said, what does the Shema mean to you, which we will talk about quite possibly not today, what does the Shema mean to you and what is your kavanah during the Shema, I'm guessing it's probably none of those things. Okay? And that is just an example of how liturgy that becomes from... uh, overused I don't mean overused as a criticism. Liturgy that becomes highly used and highly familiar over the ages ends up accruing many different levels of meaning. I don't know, probably like all men are created equal has different levels of meaning also depending on when you're reading it and what context you're reading it in. Okay? So... I, I I say all this preface because I don't want anyone to think, I don't think anyone should think there is the meaning of the Shema. When I say now the Shema, I mean the first line. There is no the meaning. Okay? So, if Kavanah is conscious intention for all of those six words, and you have to have Kavanah, now, the Halakha has its, you know, in different iterations, has its own opinions about what it means, you know. Uh, Hashem is God in all six directions of the universe. It's one interpretation the halacha gives, which I think, I don't know, is no, you know, should be no more nor less compelling to you then, I'm not a Baal worshiper, or I'm not a Jesus worshiper, or whatever it is you're thinking about. So that's just the halakha's interpretation of what you're supposed to be thinking about, but by definition, since kavanah means your conscious intention, and I can never know what's in your mind or control your mind, um, I would have to say everyone's kavanah for the first line of the Shema is probably different. Fair enough statement? Okay, let's talk a little bit about echad and what does echad mean. So in, or some guesses about what echad means. In original pshat context, most Bible scholars will say this. Echad means alone, like solely, S-O-L-E-L-Y, because Moshe original shot context in Sefer Varim and Deuteronomy is talking all about don't worship all these other gods when you come into the land. You must be loyal to Hashem Echad. Yudke Vavke is our you know, they have their deities. Yudke Vavke is our deity. Yudke Vavke Echad. So in context, it seems that Echad really means alone or soul. Does that make sense, right? They worship lots of different gods. We were. You need to remember to worship our deity solely as opposed to worshiping Yud Kevav Ke and Baal and Ashtoret, right? Because remember, the pagans generally were not paganism didn't mean... Paganism was usually polytheistic, right? They worshipped lots of gods. So he's saying, only worship one god. You can't worship Yud Vavke and Baal. That's not good enough, okay? It has to be only Hashem, all right? So in context, Echad probably means alone. Does that make sense? So most modern Bible scholars would say, what does Moshe mean? What does the book of Deuteronomy mean? Okay, um and critical Bible scholars, just to inform you, who believe that um, the Bible, the Torah, was written by different people, different parts of the Torah were written by different human beings at different times, Okay, according to secular critical Bible scholarship. They will say that Deuteronomy was probably written in the context, this was written in the context of the maybe seven hundreds, but probably six hundreds BCE, meaning fifty to a hundred years before the destruction of the first temple, where we know from the book of Kings, if you seek out to do more research on your own by reading the book of Second Kings, <coughs> there were massive long-running bloodbath. Battles between the worshipers of Hashem and the worshipers of Baal. Right? <coughs> Excuse me for a second. A new king would come in. That king would be a Baal worshiper. They would slaughter <coughs> the priests and the prophets of Hashem. Again, Hashem meaning Yud vav K, the unpronounceable name which I'm not going to pronounce. which Bible scholars say all the time in class, but I don't. Um, Everyone knows what word I mean, right? The one that starts Y-A-H, that one, okay? So, and then the next king would come in and they'd be a follower of the Y-A-H, Hashem God, and they would slaughter all the people who'd been allegiant to, all the leaders who were allegiant to Baal, the previous king's court and the prophets of Baal and the priests of Baal, and it would go back and forth. So it was politics allied to religion, right? And there were great bloodbaths about this. So there was a great, I'm going to say, struggle over polytheism versus monotheism in the 600s BCE, 700s and 600 BCE. So the, the modern secular critical Bible scholars say that part of why... You might have wondered when you're sitting in shul this time of year, although none of us are sitting in shul, but you might have wondered on Shabbos morning, why is Moses going on and on about this? Has any Raise your hand. Tell the truth. Have you ever sat there and wondering, why is Moshe droning on and on and on? I know I have. Why is this going? This is a long, this is like some Fidel Castro making the people sit there for six hours kind of speech, right? So... The answer that critical Bible scholars say is because these texts actually emerge. This is their shot interpretation. These texts are written and actually emerge in the context of 700s and 600s BCE with this seesawing combat in Israel, within Israel. We're not talking about Israel against Canaanites. Okay, We're talking about within the Israelite, Polity and kingdom about what is our religion. All right, are we loyal to Yudke Vavke alone? Right, and here's where we get the word monotheism because monos in Greek doesn't mean one, it means soul, s o l e. Okay. So monotheism means not just that you worship one god as opposed to three gods, but you believe that the one god you worship is actually the sole god of the universe. All the other gods are no gods. Everyone follow me on that? So original shot context, again, I think, I, I, don't, I never know, do people, do people think it's important to nope shot or not. A lot of people say, well, in terms of a living faith, who cares what it means originally or who wrote it or what they were thinking? It's like, who cares what the poet was thinking when she wrote the poem? This is what the poem, yeah. I don't care what the painter was thinking, right? The painting is out there and now it's mine. Um, so some people find it interesting to nope shot of. Passages and other people find it irrelevant. I just want to sort of cop to that, so you might find it irrelevant because I'm not sure any of this has to do with how what your kavanah is about the the Shema. But you know, I do have a historical bias, so I believe it's always useful to know the history. Okay, so all of this is original context in the Torah's era, so you may believe that it is Moshe warning them. Before they go into the land, don't be tempted. Or you may choose to believe that it's written by people in the 600s BCE in the midst of this big, what do we believe in our society in ancient Israel? And then some author retrojects into the mouth of Moses be careful when you come to the land, because what that, author, what that author is really meaning to say is we should not be pagan worshipers now. We must worship the one true God solely, okay? Or you can believe anything else about that. It's not my place to tell you what to believe. Um, but that's kind of, I, I'm going to say, the foundational original layer of meaning of Shema and V'havta, and lots of other passages in Deuteronomy, which are also basically about the same theme. Don't worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the creepy crawlies, all the other things that other people worship. Don't worship them. Only follow the one true God. By the way, and in last week's Parsha... Ra, we had all of these things which we didn't read. If you only did the triennial, it's in the second and third part of the parsha about. And if a prophet leads you astray to follow another god, don't follow him. And if there's a city that goes astray and worships another god, destroy the whole city. And if your kinsman goes astray to worship another god, that kinsman should be. Anyone want to fill in the blank? Yes. Yes. Joel is acting it out. Stone to death. Right. You should have no mercy on your kinsmen. Right. It's like saying, you know, someone in your family. uh, I don't want anyone to take this uh, out of context because I'm not saying the Torah. I'm not saying that any rabbi would say this today, but on an emotional level, it's as if, oh, someone in your family converted to another religion, kill them. Okay? That's what Deuteronomy is saying. So it's saying, and we, and we read a number of passages like that just in this past week's Shabbos morning, Torah reading. Meaning, Sefer Dvarim is taking this whole thing about worshiping God alone really, really, really seriously. Okay? It's a matter of life or death for them. Right? By the way, in Vahayim Shamoah, the second paragraph which is also from Deuteronomy, we read their understanding of why it's a matter of life or death, right? What does the second paragraph say? Because if you listen to these things and worship God, rain will come, which means we will, in, in a land totally dependent on rain, we will survive. And if you don't follow these words and you stray and you worship other gods, God will shut up the heavens and there will not be rain. And that means we will starve, okay? So they saw this as literal, it was understood to be literally a matter of life or death, not for individuals, because that's not what the second paragraph of Deuteronomy is about, but for B'nai Yisrael as a whole, the polity as a whole. If we don't follow God alone, then we're gonna die. Our society, our, our, our food will wither, and our society will wither. Okay, so this was taken very, 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 very seriously. All right, Paul Lerner. I just wanted to clarify or make sure I understand um, when you emphasize the meaning of echad or manos as solely or soul, that's, you're saying it's, the idea is, what's being emphasized here is that there is just one God, as opposed to the unity, I mean, what would... I right, guess, I so I think in context, I think, I don't think it's about, sorry, finish your question. I guess i that, to me, that's the kind of, that's how I would read it anyway, so I'm wondering what, what's the other reading you're here, here? Right, so I think there's a difference between... Um, so we, we, we haven't talked yet. We'll talk maybe next week about our understandings of Echad, what they could be. Now, you could say, oh, what it means is don't worship other things like money, fame, and power. You know, when I, when I was coming up in the 70s and they talked about, they said, oh, the, you know, there was all this talk about, you know, the gods of today, money, fame, power, you know, right? These are the things that people worship. Right. But you should worship the God who gives you Torah and Mitzvot. Or it could mean, despite the apparent plurality of powers in the universe, there is an underlying unity. Here's what I want to say. Um, you might, if you choose to, impute that level of Theological sophistication to Sefer Dvarim. You might say that that's actually the pshat, and I would just say, okay, maybe you're maybe you're right, uh, but I'm not sure it's the pshat. Uh, I think the pshat is don't be a baal worshiper, be a yud kei worshiper, right? And it's I I think, and again, people talk about you know, oh, do we really think pagans were stupid? Do we think ancient people were stupid? Weren't they as sophisticated thinkers as we are, even though they had different vocabulary? So isn't this really a debate about there's a plurality of forces in conflict in the universe versus there's an underlying unity in the universe, right? So um, I'll just say, okay, maybe. Maybe 3,000 years ago, they were theologically that, Articulate and thoughtful and if you would have said to someone what do you really mean by that they might have answered that and I'm just saying okay maybe or maybe some co- educated Kohain might have answered that but I'm guessing your average Israelite just might have said because Baal has no power Yudke Vavke has all the power right or they might have said Baal is a subordinate spiritual force but yud Vavke is the highest god who dominates the other gods, right? So what you're asking, Paul, what you're suggesting is, isn't there an ideological, I'm going to call it a philosophical, theological thought behind that ideology? Is that sort of what you're saying? I think that's what you're saying. And I would just say, okay, maybe they thought that 3,000 years ago, maybe not. I'm pretty sure today that's how we would articulate it, okay? Um, but I don't know that, someone would have articulated it that way back then but maybe they did maybe I'm not giving them enough credit Larry Herman unmute an alternative Bishad interpretation is very simply not that it's exclusive which is Shema Yisrael the name Hashem is our God okay and it's that's our only God which is not the negation of other gods. Right. So they got yeah. They right. So, um, so sorry to interrupt, gentlemen. So Bible scholars talk a lot about the evolution of the idea of monotheism and different stages in it. So, for example, there is a passage, the passage in Deuteronomy about the sun, moon, and the stars. See you, Paul? The passage in Deuteronomy, we'll still wrap it up in a minute. The passage about the sun, moon, and the stars doesn't say you shouldn't worship them because they are not gods and have no power. It just says... God has allotted them to the other nations as their deities. So you shouldn't worship them. You should only worship Yud K-5-K. In other words, it doesn't say those gods are no gods. It says they're not your gods, right? So, and again, Bible scholars talk about evolution of monotheism. They have a thing they call, they say, Bible scholars, they, you know, they academics, you know, they always make up jargon. So they have a word, henotheism. Heno is from Greek, henos, which means one. So they say there was a stage of henotheism, which means we worship only one God. We're not saying those gods aren't other gods, right? Remember the passage of Yiftach and his daughter, which is a Haftorah of uh, something. I can't remember what it's the Haftorah uh, in, somewhere in Midbar in Numbers, where He's trash-talking with the Ammonites who say, give us back our land, you stole us our land. And Yiftach says to them, hey man, your God is Kamosh. If Kamosh wanted you to have the land, he would have given it to you. But Yudke Vavke gave us the land, right? So Yiftach isn't saying Yudke Vavke is the God of the whole universe and Kamosh doesn't exist. He's saying, I guess my daddy's stronger than your daddy. That's what he's saying. Okay, that's why I refer to it as trash-talking. My God is stronger than your God. If your God would have won, he would have given you the land. But but our God gave us the land. You know, you have to draw your own conclusions, O Ammonites. So don't come whining to me about that we have to give you back the land. All right? So that's, for example, an illustration of henotheism. This is our God. That guy is your God. They fight up in heaven. Whoever wins... Um, and we know that if we look in, uh, you know, Robert Graves has a book called The Greek Myths. It's two volumes. of page- And he basically says um, all these Greek myths are just story embodiments of fighting among different Greek cities and city states. Right. If Athena was your champion and Athens won, then you told some story about athena defeating someone else it was all narrative which just represented politics Does that makes sense right it's just that and it's not that people didn't believe in those other gods they believed the gods were fighting up in on olympus and your god beat my god meant you know my city lost they didn't say my god doesn't exist right And they probably didn't say, and I'm going to stop worshipping my God and start worshipping your God. Although maybe that city would say, you have to worship, you may worship your God, but you also have to worship my God. Just like, you know, the Romans set up a statue of Jupiter in the temple, right? They didn't say, you have to stop worshipping your God, right? They said, you just also have to worship Jupiter in addition to worshipping your God, right? Because Jupiter is a bigger god. What's the evidence of the fact that Jupiter is a bigger god? We whooped you. That's the proof, okay? So it's clear that we don't go from paganism to one god is the force underlying everything in the universe overnight And there were probably stages in development of this. And one stage is, there are lots of gods. We only worship this god. The gods are fighting. Oh, if we lose, maybe we should worship another god also. A stage was, we swear 100% loyalty only to this god. We will never worship any other god. And Deuteronomy says that. But there are other, but it's clear that the culmination is, in biblical times, I mean, look at Isaiah right, all the passages that we're reading now for Haftorahs, basically say their God is a no God. Their idols have no force, no vitality, no power. Their God is a nothing. There's only one God of the Shamayim Va'aretz, heavens and earth, which is their way of saying the whole universe. So this is in the part of Isaiah that's called 2nd Isaiah, probably wrote in the 500s. So by the time of the Babylonian exile... It appears if we look at Isaiah, the monotheism was kind of the monotheism that we would recognize when we say monotheism, right? We just that in the Haftorah two weeks ago. There we go, because we're in because we're in Second Isaiah now. Most of those Haftorot, the Haftorot of consolation, right? So most of them say their gods are no gods, meaning their gods are nothing, right? And he uses the the fact that people worship their deities in in uh, physical form and statues to sort of heap on the mockery, right? So um, it's like you're going to worship uh, the god that you believe inhabits that wooden statue, or are you going to worship the invisible god who is the god of heavens and earth? For for Isaiah, it's like no contest, man, okay? But we know from reading, let's say, the story of Elijah, which is in the, who uh, uh, was in the 800s, okay? In the 800s BCE, 300, 300 years before this prophet that we call 2nd Isaiah in the exile. We know that 300 years ago, it was a big issue, okay? So 100, so we read those passages from Isaiah, Their God is a nothing, okay? But 100 and 200 and 300 years before those passages were written, it was actually a very live big deal. I'm not sure any of this is relevant to our Kavanah for the Shema today. So maybe I gave you, today we talked about irrelevancies or just some shock background, which some people might find interesting.